What number is this, Chip? Zilch 171, Monkeys 101 for Dance Monkey Dance, an interview with Derek Lewis from the Zilch Archives, tour news, and more. Much more. Okay, no, I mean, don't get excited, man. It's because I'm short. I know. Zilch. You're listening to Zilch, a Monkeys podcast. to Zilch, everybody. This is one of your hosts, Sarah Clark, and joining me, as has been the habit lately, is Tim Powers. We're going to start rumors, Sarah, if we're not if we're not careful. If we weren't several hundred miles apart, people would go, what's up with those two? Yeah, um, I'm in Philly, and you're like way up in upstate. I'm way, other. way. Yeah. People don't need to know where I am. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one step ahead of the process server, Sarah. It is. It blows my mind that we are 171 episodes into a podcast about a show that went off the air 50 years ago and we're still discussing new content from its you know all of its principles we have almost three times as many zilch episodes as there were monkeys episodes (laughs) and yeah, some of them are even better than some of those monkeys episodes, but that's all right. There, there's so much going on, and and so much of it is is cool, great news, and so buckle in, Zilchers, because there's a lot of cool stuff in this episode. Not the least of which is my favorite part of Zilch, Monkeys 101, because you guys get so granular and so cool with with so many little like little tidbit details. Mm-hmm. And yeah. you discuss it not only as an episode, but in its cultural context, which I think is always fascinating. So as silly as as the Ronaldo's Dance A Go Go Dance Monkeys Dance episode is, I'm really I'm looking forward to this. I haven't heard it yet, so I'm really excited to hear what you do. <laughs> Yeah, we had a we had a good time with this one, and uh, we've got a little extra special treat from the archives. We pulled a interview I did back in 2016 with Derek Lewis, who played the lead dancing smoothie, and I just went ahead and put the whole thing in there. It's awesome. It talks a lot about the Monkeys episode, of course, but also just about his career in Hollywood and kind of what it was like in the late 50s through the 60s through Mm -hmm. today in some ways if you're just kind of an everyday journeyman you know character actor you're a working actor right and it's I am a working actor right now just not in Hollywood I'm acting exclusively through my voice and we fight a lot of the same a lot of the same battles you know the Hollywood system is is still what it is Uh, fascinating (laughs) fascinating conversation with a smoothie which is really cool. And for those of you who are kind of in the know, I'm going to drop a little weird little esoteric little nugget in there. Every time the dancing smoothies do their dancing smoothies move, I hear in the back of my head, the aristocrats. <laughs> Don't Google that. All right, moving on. Do you want to cut that, Sarah? No, I'm leaving that in. All right, cool. <laughs> Don't Google that unless you're like, you know. Don't Google it at work. Yes, not not safe for work. Anyway, well, 
we've got monkeys 101 and we've got updates on the tour the tour is still going on mm-hmm. we've got getting great reviews all over the place i think people because it's the farewell tour everybody is just really enjoying it there is a little bit of information on the lineup we need to share christian and cersei did leave, have to leave the tour kind of out after their swing through the south they had some other commitments pop up and i know tim you are going to share a little bit more about that a but bit. Yeah, things are just still in very capable hands with Wayne and newcomer, I hope I get his name right, Amin Zarukian on our guitars. And Coco, of course, is keeping up with the background vocals. I, I, I realized the other day when I was putting this together that she has been doing Monkeys tours for longer than I've been alive, probably, because she she's was been doing backup with them back in the day. She's been doing since the records days, right? She's, it, on, she's since on a lot the of the records. records. Yeah, she's on a lot of the post-TV series records. So Yep, she really is. But, but yeah, Christian posted a great post. I know you had a chance to take a look at it. Uh, yeah, what what he basically had to say was, we had other commitments. We're leaving on friendly terms and be looking out for new things. And every artist is on the on a journey, right? There's There's the intersection of art and commerce. Yep. And there are times when you are obligated to things that take you away from other obligations. So, you know, whatever the circumstances are, they're none of our business. We hope that Christian and Cersei do well with whatever they're doing. We'll miss them on the tour. But, you know, break legs, guys. Seriously. And the, and the details, really none of our business. Moving on. Uh, Absolutely. Well, I wanted to mention one more detail because it's your, you know, it, it, it's the record you were gushing about last time we were on the new Cersei and Christian album, Cosmologica, will mm-hmm. be dropping on November 1st. Uh, so we are recording on Halloween. So by the time you hear this, it will likely be available to you. So Look check to Cosmologica, it. the laser show appearing at a planetarium near you. Cosmologica, the music of Christian Nesbitt and Circe Link, live with lasers. I just love doing that. Sorry. I know. I had to set you up so you could do that again. Thank I you mean, very much. I actually was... got feedback on it from people <laughs> in the industry. They're like, oh, we really want to see this. This is great. Anytime we've got a, a planetarium job, you're our guy. I'm like, thanks. That's, that's great. Yeah. Super fun. So thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. All right. Cool. Excellent. In other news, I have probably seen this same YouTube video pop up a half a dozen times in the last few days. And those of you who I had to turn it down to go into the group, I apologize. We try to only post a link like once a day so that you're not just seeing the same thing over and over and over in your feed. But singer Sarah Rattle put together this adorable video. She portrays all four of the monkeys, eight button shirts, rainbow room, and all at the same time, lovely technology through a medley, and and they do like a medley of kind of all the hit tunes. She does great impressions of all four guys, and uh, there's even a bit of Davy dancing at the end, so watch it all the way through. Not only is she all four guys, and Sarah, if you're listening, great little nuanced little actions. Your, your Nesmith, I couldn't care less stare into the camera was absolutely gorgeous all the way through the Mickey trying to look off camera, but still trying to look at the, I mean, everything in there, she's clearly, you know, one of, one of the minutia fans, like the rest of us, right? She is a connoisseur. So it would not surprise me if she's listening to this. But not only does she play all four guys beautifully, but she also plays everyone dancing in the club so yes. there so 
God love the green screen, right? She just mm-hmm. loops herself on top of video, on top of video, on top of video. And this is exemplary. This, I mean, this is an audition piece for not oh, yeah. only a very capable singer, but also a very capable video producer. So if you're looking for video production for your next event, check out Sarah's video. I'm sure there'll be a link of it in the, in the notes. I was, I was blown away by this because I just thought it was really cool. <sighs> so check it out. It is in the, in the, in the show notes. Yes, we've got the link in the show notes. It's all over the place. You need to check it out. And it doesn't even have, I was surprised it only has like 8,000 hits, or or, excuse me, views. Fix that. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. I want Zilch Nation to go out and check that out. We need to make this gal go viral. So Yeah, there you go. Make her her go viral. Share it with your friends. And now. The moment we've all been waiting for. Dance Monkey Dance on, on, on Monkeys 101. I love this episode. We're, we're in. As we go chronologically through the episodes, we're we're at the point where the monkeys have found their stride and yes. we're seeing the guys who were not actors to begin with finding their way as an actor. This is one of Peter's better episodes as an actor. Mike has found his character, you know, as as the leader of the group and the um and you know, just he's he's okay being silly. You know, they've they're really comfortable smashing down that fourth wall in this. So I'm really excited to see where where you guys go with this. And such a such a great episode with so many great character actors. Yes, excellent. We talk a lot about Hal March and the his quiz show past, mm-hmm. and we kind of bring up some of the same stuff you were talking about, about it kind of everybody hitting their stride. We really talk about how this one is is truly an ensemble episode. It's hard to, you know, like some episodes are Davy episodes or Peter episodes or Mike episodes, but this is, this is one that is really, they're all four balanced and they all play a role in resolving the situation they're in. Which was part of the charm of the entire show for me was, you know, their buddyhood and how they, they go to rescue any of the guys. Right. And they each use their own individual skills to, you know, rescue their buddy. Exactly. You know, it's great. It, so here it is, Monkeys 101 on Dance Monkey Dance. The Aristocrats. Class. Class. It's Monkeys 101. Here at Zilch, a Monkeys podcast, we're big fans of education. But as Zilch Nation grows, there's also a growing number of fans who don't know their Frodus from their Freebull Energizer, or who've forgotten the departure time for last train to Clarksville. There are even people in this world who can't solve the equation nine times blue. Oh, but have no fear, because doctors Roseanne Welch and Sarah Clark are here to help with their new series, Monkeys 101. Their regular class sessions and symposiums on special topics will explore all things monkeys, from the deeper meanings of the TV show and music we all know and love to the cultural impact of the monkeys from 1966 all the way to the present. We'll even explore the monkeys' connections to history then and now. Stay tuned for a fun, thoughtful romp through the world of the monkeys. And who knows? At the end of the episode, you just might be thinking about the monkeys in a different, deeper way. Welcome back to Monkeys 101. I am one of your hosts, Dr. Sarah Clark, and joining me as always is Dr. Roseanne Welch. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. 
Yep, we are doing episode 14 today, Dance Monkey Dance. Uh, a lifetime contract of dance lessons keeps the monkeys on their toes until the group taps into a scheme of their own. Written by Bernie Orenstein, directed by James Frawley, uh, filmed from October 11th through 14th of 1966, aired December 12th of six, 1966. Ratings, uh, 18.6 rating slash 31 share, uh, which works out to 10,210,000 viewers. And it won the time slot again. I think this is the second or third time it's won the time slot. And given it's up against Gilligan's Island, that's not too shabby. So <laughs> Exactly, exactly. I think that's an important thing. And because it also still had issues with not always being shown everywhere because some some southern TV stations didn't appreciate rock and roll. It was the devil's music, and so they weren't airing the show. <laughs> Yeah, I can believe that. Now I'm going to have to go look and see if I can figure out if the uh, TV stations back in uh, Oklahoma City, which is where I grew up, were, were airing at the time. I could see that one going either way. And I know Wouldn't that the, be interesting? Wouldn't that be interesting? Yeah, I'm going to have to see if I can find, it, find out about that. Um, and I know that you had some things you wanted to share about this week's writer, Bernie Orenstein, who has popped up a few times and will pop up again uh, throughout the run of the series. Exactly, exactly. Well, Bernie is an interesting man. He's one of the men I also got to interview all over the phone because he lived in New York City, still does. He's actually a teacher of film history, um, and he teasingly said, what, teach film history? I am film history. <laughs> so his humor has not left him, even in his early 80s at this stage, late 80s, I should say, by now. Wow. Um, what I think is interesting to notice, sometimes we've noticed on some of these credits it's the writer, and then we have Gardner and Caruso, but we do not have that in this case. Correct. And that generally means that they did not do much. They're probably always, you know, your your high-level producers are going to do some tweaking, but they didn't do enough to cause them to want to go into arbitration and have their names added to the script. So that either speaks to the fact that they knew Bernie from just hanging about, you know, L.A. and being that sort of writer, or they trusted him because of his background. He'd only done about four regular TV shows, but he was now a regular writer on this Hollywood Palace thing, which was a variety show kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And they might have just assumed he knew what he was doing and he gave them what they wanted so they didn't really need to polish it. Yep, there you go. And it is a it is a good solid episode. So it is a very, you know, you can see that he was influenced by what they told him. Yeah, now we're going to talk about the breaking the fourth wall scene. He completely breaks the wall in a way that no one else had yet done. Mm -hmm. um, he has a few other winks and nods to the camera, so he's definitely playing with that aspect of it. And he also has that that Jewish writer, vaudeville, former Yiddish theater parents kind of humor, which really was part of TV in the 50s and 60s. Oh, yes. I would say this episode is like... A, an episode of any show that would have aired before the monkeys aired and, in my opinion, changed television. Um, so he's writing from the past versus being somebody like Peter Meyerson or, or Treva who's going to write us into the future. Yes, that's very true. And I, I, people, people kind of talk about first season episodes versus second season episodes in that, in that same, um, in that sense. And yes, there, I mean, you can see how television writing is shifting through the run of the show. It's a really transformative moment, but it's not like somebody flipped a switch in September of 67 and they suddenly became all new Hollywood. It's, it's kind of this, it's it it's more of this gradual shifting thing, and they'll kind of jump forward and then go back, and yeah, it's it's really interesting. 
And in that way, that's what's fun about studying something more deeply and instead of just letting it fly right by. It's like, oh, look at how you can see the different, the different fingerprint, if you will, in this one versus certainly something like Frodo's cape. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I think it's pretty cool. And uh, it's also a tiny, tiny note that he wrote uh, a TV special from Mama Cass, who, of course, was a friend and neighbor to Mickey Dolan. So he was accepted in the rock and roll world, even though in his mind he was part of the Hollywood Palace, Dean Martin, Frank Sinatra, the group that didn't want our guys and guys like them to take over their business. Right, right. And I think it's interesting, even the more seasoned uh, writers who worked on the show definitely seem to be able to, at least in an extent, kind of have one foot in both worlds. Yeah, to keep your career going, you had to do that. So I think it's pretty cool. And I think he's a cool guy. So it's fun to focus on him. Absolutely. Okay, moving on to In the News for this week of December 12th, 1966. On the 12th, the U.S. Supreme Court voted 4-3 to three to allow the Braves, who I believe were in Boston at the time, to move to Atlanta. Uh, also on the 12th, A Man for All Seasons, based on the play by Robert Bolt, directed by Fred Zinnerman and Paul, starring Paul Schofield, uh, premieres in New York, and it won the Best Picture for 1967. Uh, I think I watched that uh, movie in history class back in the day, so it's uh, quite a good watch. <laughs> Uh, December a good 5th. recommendation. Yes, a good recommendation. Thank you. Yes. December 15th. A doing, a doing I'm probably butchering that name. My apologies. Discovers the 10th satellite of Saturn, Janus. On the 15th, also, John W. Meekum Jr. becomes the first owner of the New Orleans Saints. I think I recall a few episodes ago, they uh, basically had formed the team. So that makes sense. Exactly. How fun. December 16th, the Beatles release Everywhere It's Christmas in the UK. Also on the 16th, another uh, act uh, somewhat connected to the Monkees, Jimi Hendrix Experience, released its first single, Hey Joe, also in the UK. Because I know he lived (laughs) in the UK for some years, um, kind of building his career before he came back to the States and, you know opened for some band you may have heard for and then, you know, went on to do some, some other gr- stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Weird Al Yankovic, right? He and Weird Al work together. <laughs> uh, something like that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> They're connected somehow. I can't quite remember how. Yes. And now for our um, younger or younger at heart uh, folks, uh, December 18th, 1966 was the first ever airing of Dr. Seuss's How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Wow. Which I'm sorry to say to anyone who likes the movie is much better than the movie and the movie never needed to be made, but that's just my opinion. Oh yeah, no, I'm with you on that. (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful, wonderful special as I know we're all aware. And then also on December 18th, another moon of Saturn was discovered. Uh, Epithemius was discovered by Richard L. Walker. So that's the news for the week of December 12th, 1966. Isn't it interesting that the Beatles did a Christmas song? Because you don't really think about it, but it was a very traditional thing for Sinatra and Dean Martin and all those guys. Everybody, Rosemary Clooney, you did Christmas music. But you don't think about that as something rock and rollers did. So you wonder if that was a manager decision, an album, you know, a a production company decision, or what? Yeah, I'm not sure because the Monkees, well, I mean, unless you count Ryu Shiyu, which didn't come out, wasn't actually released on an album for some time thereafter, it took them, you know, 50 plus years to get around to doing a lot of Christmas music, so. Exactly. It's so funny. 
<laughs> Funny how these things work. Moving on to the top five, uh, once again, I'm happy because, uh, as the editor, because it's the same five songs. They've just shifted around some more. Uh, <laughs> number five, Unchanged, You Keep Me Hanging On by The Supremes. Unchanged Devil with a Blue Dress slash Good Golly Miss Molly by Mitch Ryder and the Detroit Wheels. Number three, down to Good Vibrations by the Beach Boys. Good, 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 good vibrations. Number two, Unchanged, Mellow Yellow by Donovan. I'm just mad about saffron. Saffron's mad about me. I'm just mad about saffron. She's just mad about me. They call me mellow yellow. And number one, up to Winchester Cathedral by the new vaudeville band. Winchester Cathedral, you're bringing me down. You stood and you watched out. And isn't it cute that they're called the new vaudeville band when I probably think a lot of people today don't know much about vaudeville. And here in the 60s, they could use that phrase and know that people knew what it meant. Well, exactly, because vaudeville versus the 60s is pretty much roughly the 60s versus today, maybe a little bit further back, depending on what you're talking about specifically. But um, just just another one of those things that makes you think about how we're all getting old. But anyway. (laughs) Yeah, anyway, anyway. And then another note on um, the Billboard charts in its second week on the charts, and it's the week after its TV debut. I'm a believer shot up from number 44 to number eight. Gee, I wonder how that happened. (laughs) And I think, yeah, and I think that bodes for probably some shifts happening in the top five in the next week or so, too. (laughs) Oh, I can see that. And it's funny, of course, because it'll appear in this episode, as you'll mention later. And just in rehearing it, when I rewatched it, it always makes me laugh because you know that when they were doing Shrek, they looked around for a song to use. And merely because you open with the phrase fairy tale, they went, oh, that'll work for us. (laughs) I think there was more to it than that. I mean, it it sort of thematically works with Shrek, I think. I, I actually think that's one of the better uses of it, even though I don't particularly care for that cover but you know (laughs) correct don't care for the cover but glad that that brought that song into a more modern world absolutely and it gave uh gave mickey yet another line for his uh shtick so (laughs) true 
<sighs> so we'll be hearing more of that. And uh, yes, it, it appears in every episode, I think for the next three or four. So they are, they're working it, working that synergy. Yep. Moving on to our guest stars, we've got some interesting folks this week. First off is Karen Arthur, who was uh, credited in this episode as Karen James, uh, as Miss Buntwell. Um, <laughs> now, The Monkees was probably her most notable acting role. She also appeared a couple of times on Get Smart. But in the mid-70s, she jumped over to directing, where she stayed active till 2008. Um, she directed episodes of Heart to Heart, Cagney and Lacey, Seventh Heaven, Judging Amy, and... Basically, every uh, just about every 80s and 90s made-for-TV movie you could list. There's a whole chunk of them <laughs> on her page. And in fact, in 1985, she became the first woman ever to win a directing Emmy for the Cagney and Lacey episode, Heat. This is pretty incredible because we're talking a lot about how there aren't enough females, both in writing and in directing. In TV, there are more, certainly, than there are in movies. But it's a constant debate, and the fact that she was smart enough to do, essentially, what Mickey did and what Ron Howard did, recognize I can't be a teen star forever, I'm going to go into another part of the business because that's what I enjoy. Um, it's a pretty brilliant move on her part, and it it is kind of shocking that it worked so well that early in the time of the business when we still can count shows that'll have three female directors out of 22 episodes. And that's supposed to be a big step, you know, forward. Mm -hmm. So she was way ahead of the pack. Yeah, very true. Very true. And that's definitely why I wanted to uh, point her out. It's interesting to me. It seems like every few episodes we have somebody who um, like Joni Jans, who became a, uh, you know, a horror movie writer and an action movie writer to uh, Karen Arthur. And I know there was a, um, a, actress in a prior episode who uh, started doing Will Smith's makeup. It's interesting to see every few episodes we have somebody like this who maybe doesn't have the hugest string of acting credits, but then they uh, jump behind the camera and just have this cold career on things that we don't necessarily think of. So it's a smart move. Think about the two guys from happy days. Um, oh gosh. The guy who played Potsy and the guy who played Ralph. Yeah. His yeah. Name's skating. Um, both became directors and, and still are directing comedies to this day because they weren't going to continue. Partially it's because you get pigeonholed and stereotyped as a particular character and right. it's hard to grow out of that and you know it. Um, and partially because that's maybe the job you find more interesting after a while actors, some actors decide, as I've read in their various, in their various interviews, they don't want to be the thing that gets told what to do. They want to tell people what to do. Yeah. And that makes a lot of sense. So. Yeah. Okay, next up, Stephen Coit as Timid Man. Uh, he had the uh, 81 credits on IMDb. He worked from the early 50s to the early 80s, mostly the usual one-shots and the usual shows, but he did appear multiple times on uh, several westerns, including The Maverick, The Virginian, and Bonanza, and he also appeared multiple times on Barnaby Jones. <laughs> next up is Elizabeth Camp as Woman. <laughs> Only four credits. The Monkees is probably the only one you will have likely heard of. So probably just a friend of a friend who was available that day or something like that. So Exactly. Exactly. Then, a hanger-on girlfriend. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Um, let's see. And then we are getting to some of the ones we've got, a few more that we've got a lot more to say about. Uh, Derek Lewis, who is the lead dancing smoothie. Uh, and I'm going to do something I very rarely do here, and I'm going to direct you to another episode, specifically episode 54, in which I actually got on the phone with Derek Lewis, and we chatted for, oh gosh, about a half hour. 
about his life and career in TV as a stage performer. He uh, plays piano. He has a, does a lot of like cabaret stuff these days. He's just this fun story, and he's this lovely gentleman um, that you really should be following on Facebook if you don't, because he'll often post. He posts every so often about being on the monkeys and and about various other TV shows. He posts about his um his performing that he does himself, and he's just a just a sweet gentleman who's had a had kind of a fun life. So, hmm. well, there you go, a fun Facebook follow, and you you are referencing episode fifty four of Zilch, of course. Episode fifty four of Zilch, yes, to clarify. Yeah. <laughs> and that also cool. has the color cast commentary of Dance Monkey Dance, obviously. So, um, yeah, I think we've still got a few more episodes before we go past where they were with uh, color cast. But uh, we'll see cool. how that goes there. So. Next up, How March as Ronaldo. And he was definitely mm. the biggest name that was in this particular episode. Um, yes. And and probably would have been fairly well known at that time. Uh, he first came on the scene as in 1944 as half of the comedy duo Sweeney and March. He and Bob Sweeney had their own radio program, aptly titled The Sweeney and March Show, on CBS Radio through 40, 1948. In the early 50s, um, he broke out into TVs and movies, um, lot, taking lots of small, uncredited roles and appearing on a few TV shows such as I Love Lucy and the Kate Smith Evening Hour. And his first big break on TV came when he was hired as one of the four Harry Mortons on the uh, George Burns and Gracie Allen show. Uh, but then, of course, his biggest break came in 1955 when he was hired to host the $64,000 question, the most lucrative money quiz show of its time. Um, this is interesting talking <laughs> about. Yes. You're going to lead to the problem with that show. Well, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so and the movie you suggestion, may have, we, the other movie suggestion. Yeah, well, well, you you may know more than I, uh, I do. I basically pulled from IMDb, but um, basically this made him, his program, the Undisputed King of Game Shows, uh, and uh, inspired a few copycat productions. Unfortunately, of course, the show was a casualty of the quiz show scandal in 19, uh, 1958, so... Exactly. And that is the film in 1994 by Robert Redford. So if you want to see the in-depth story of what happened in terms of giving certain people the proper answers, right, they were scripting those shows. In the same way, I feel bad when people talk about, you know, reality shows today. I'm like, you do understand someone writes what those people are going to say in those little tiny interviews about what a terrible time they had on the island or yeah. whatever it was they were doing. Uh, yeah. It's like these things have almost always been scripted. Um Post the scandal, they stopped doing that with game shows. They would script funny things for the celebrity guests to say, but they would let the normal people um, do whatever they were going to, you know, come up with whatever they could. And that's why they started to have both auditions. You could go and try to be on uh, Jeopardy or the $25,000 Pyramid. And they had coaches and there were classes you could take to try to win the audition to get on the show. And it became a whole different kind of business in order to not make it a scandal. Yep. Yeah, it's interesting talking about this as we record this. Um, a lot of the back and forth drama with uh, Jeopardy's hosting setup is kind of going on right now. So it's interesting to see, you know, these things just keep coming around again. 
<laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's true. Yeah. Uh, but after the uh, after the sixty four thousand dollar question was canceled, he continued to appear on various sitcoms and variety shows, um, usually helmed by comedians he'd previously worked with, like Lucille Ball, Jack Benny, and Danny Thomas. Uh, and actually, The Monkees was almost one of his last roles. He passed away in 1970, uh, just at the age of 49, uh, with lung cancer. Yeah, this is a sad thing. And, you know, it's funny, we'll, we'll note in the beginning of this episode that we see Mrs. Buntwell on the phone with a cigarette in her mouth, and it was so typical and natural to have people smoke cigarettes because it made them cool and all of that nonsense. And people still do that. Writers try not to, and sometimes we forcibly try not to, but mm-hmm. it's also like shorthand for cool, which is really sad. Yeah, yeah, very true. Okay, and then, of course, I need to end this with one person who did not appear as a guest in this episode, Bette Nesmith Graham. Uh, Michael Nesmith's mother did not appear in this episode. I know we all thought she did because that one lady in the dance scene really looked like her, but Nes himself confirmed it, and I think he would know whether or not he danced with his mom on national TV. <laughs> Exactly. But, you know, IMDb still lists her. I know. I've sent in a correction to IMDb, like, not long after Nez posted on Facebook and said, uh, no, that's not her. And, uh, it was ignored. I think Melanie Mitchell put one in. So let's all, like, like, mass send in a correction to IMDb because they need to fix it. In fact, you'll see in that conversation with Derek Lewis, I think, um, actually a lot of his, uh, credits that he, he did, um, kind of in the 70s and 80s were not in uh imdb and he was kind of you know and we kind of got into a conversation about you know how it's a wiki like everything else and sometimes things are accurate and sometimes they are not accurate so exactly and what's exactly it's the same reason we tell students they can't just use wikipedia it's a nice place to look but it's not the only thing and it can change and be adjusted and it needs people to watch it so it's one of those things Yep, back when I still taught library instruction, I'd always say, I'm not going to tell you not to look at it because I know you're going to look at it anyway. So what you need to do is think of it like an encyclopedia article. It gives you a basic understanding, but you shouldn't be citing it in your research papers. But if you scroll down to the bottom, a lot of times on like, especially more scholarly topics, you will find like citations to sources that might be useful. So there's your free information literacy tip for the day. (laughs) A fair thing to give out. There you go. (laughs) Okay, um, so moving on to our episode recap. We open with the first instance, I double-checked, of a plot development that will become one of the classic tropes of the series, Peter Signs a Dumb Contract. (laughs) (laughs) And it all starts with a phone call that I'm going to insert right here. opportunity of a lifetime. Yeah, you got a chance to win a free lesson at America's foremost dance emporium, Renata's Dance A Go Go. <laughs> hey, how did that grab you, sir? That sounds like the opportunity of a lifetime. Oh, listen, you can win a free dance lesson valued at $12.98. And all you have to do is answer one little question. Are you ready? Yeah. Who was the eighth president of the United States of America? I'm afraid I don't know that. Oh, well, listen, the boss isn't around, so I tell you what I do. You sound like a nice Joe. I give you a little hint, all right? 
his name is President Ben... Johnson. Ben Johnson. Ben Johnson. Ben Johnson. Ben Heflin. No, no, no. Which is wrong, Ben or Heflin? Ben is right, but that's his last name. Oh, Ben is his last... Ben... Moving Ben! Moving Ben! Oh, Martin. Dean Martin. Come on, Ben. Martin Van Buren. Martin Van Buren. Oh, oh. Congratulations. You just won a free dance lesson at Ronaldo's Dance at Go-Go. Now, look, hon, all I need is your name, all right? Could you give me a hint? Don't you even know your name? Oh, yes, it's Peter. I'll be right down for my free lesson. Bye. Now, and then for, we'll talk about this. Yes. Um, and now, first off, I have to say, that's a pretty decent bit of telephone acting. Would somebody have been, like, on the other side for him to act against, or does he just do his lines, or does that, like, vary from show to show and situation to situation? It would be, and it depends. If you're regulars on the show and you're not in the shot like that, you would be on set as a favor to your fellow actor because you're friends and you would be saying the lines from behind the camera and that would be fine. You wouldn't be on camera. That'd be fine. In this case, because she's not a regular, you don't want to pay somebody to be there for that yeah. purpose. She'd probably, unless they were going to appear in scenes later on. So um, you would have your AD would read the lines to Peter. And sometimes those people will read them with inflection as if they're acting and sometimes they will just read them <laughs> okay so it probably would have been like john anderson or somebody like that who was yeah okay. exactly cool I, I was... the line so that it gives the right beat between exactly exactly i mean there's a lot of cutting back and forth because it's a phone call and also because it's the monkeys but i i, I got curious about that one because i thought oh, it was actually a pretty decent bit of telephone acting you know sometimes it's better than other times so well and you know who's mimicking or who would say he's mimicking because the famous tv um and and comic album phone guy was Bob Newhart. Of course. Oh, yes. <laughs> that's what he was known for, right? Oh, Mr. Lincoln, I think we should change that last line, you know, and that sort of thing. And all of Bob Newhart's shows involve him on the telephone. This is true. Very, absolutely. Yeah. And um, you also were going to ask our audience whether they uh, caught all of the references, I know. <laughs> but I just thought it was adorable when, when you get to President Van and poor Peter says Van Johnson, who is a famous comedic actor in probably my favorite film he's in is Brigadoon. Oh, yes. Kelly. Right. There's a great scene I'll give you to insert that's, um, I've always given to people when they use language, um, because Brigadoon's a town that only shows up every hundred years because witches set it up that way, blah, 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 to keep people pure. It's an interesting, beautiful little musical, actually. Um, and there's a great scene where somebody says, imagine you don't have witches your period. And Van Johnson says, oh, we have them. We just pronounce it differently. <laughs> He's quite funny. And he always played that second, you know, sidekick funny guy. Yeah. And then Peter guesses Van Heflin, who was, a, again, another actor who had won a supporting actor in 1942. So that's kind of going back. For somebody in 1968, um, yeah. Considering but, he was he was born for real in 1942, though, uh, if memory serves, they, they, they were putting out in publicity he was born in 44. So, but still, <laughs> that's early on for him. But you know, it just yeah. speaks to the power of 
quote unquote movie stars that were still known, still spoken about in the tabloids. Right. So I think that's funny. And of course, we all do know, one assumes that when he gets around to Dean and he guesses Dean Martin, we know who that is. Mm-hmm. So I don't have to explain that. <laughs> yeah. So we have uh, this and he goes down and uh, after the o- opening cre- credits, Peter has signed the contract and explains what has happened. Uh, Mike, of course, being the smart one, views the contract. And after explaining to Peter that he signed a lifetime contract, Peter offers to simply tear it up. Then they explain to him he can't tie up a, a, a tear up a card, a, a contract because it's le- a legal document. But K- Peter's convinced it wouldn't get him convicted, which, of course, is a cue for a quick trip to the courtroom. <laughs> question. sign that obviously as a freelance writer Bernie was told we like to do these funny cutaways oh, yeah. come up with cute ones and ta-da he did and really it's a mimic back to the pilot right which cuts to their little judging situation mm-hmm. without the wigs yeah it's it's definitely a call back to that as well so thanks to a little monkey magic Davey Mickey and Mike don robes and uh, wigs somewhat chewable rig and wing in one place as the uh, defense <laughs> attorney prosecutor and the judge respectively um, Peter is grilled ruthlessly by prosecutor Mickey hit over the head by judge Mike Scavel and eventually found guilty <laughs> uh, return to reality the guys concerned about Peter's dancing his way to the poorhouse each come up with a uh, idea to help him and uh, he, he kind of right. has a throwaway line in the scene about being just a kid that Roseanne you kind of wanted to, to shout out only I thought it was a fun place to point out that we forget in our era once you can now we can vote at 18 that even in the period we're talking about they could not yet do that this is going to happen in 1972 and that's mm-hmm. something Nixon's going to do to make the teenagers like him <laughs> um uh, but this idea was still being talked about, it was really um, germinating. And I think it's a cool monkey's connection that Boysenhart had created a song called Let Us Vote, yes. right? which didn't, didn't do well on the billboard charts, but gave them a chance to, you know, travel the country and really get kids organized about the idea that voting is important. And I hope that it's something people still consider important, important today. I often tell students, you know, women have to realize their great grandmothers couldn't vote. So this is a privilege. Right. Mm-hmm. And teenagers have to figure out you couldn't have voted like 
a couple of generations ago. Yeah, so don't dismiss the fact that it's important. Yeah, until the early 70s. Um, in fact, uh, I remember Boyce and Hart in the uh, documentary that was put out a few years ago. Uh, never got wide release, but you can find it, I think, if you hunt for it. Um, they uh, they point out that, that one of their biggest accomplishments that it, it, Bobby Hart says one of the things he feels proudest about is he helped get a constitutional amendment passed. So <laughs> That's not, you know, nothing yeah, to see that for a pop group. Yeah. <laughs> And I think it's, it will note as we see some of the other after show um, interviews and later episodes, right? Eve Davey makes the point, no one listens to me because I'm under 21. I mean, mm-hmm. this was a serious thing to them. They were not grown-ups yet. And, they were not grown-ups. But grown a kid looking except, at them today. Yeah, except for the draft. But, you know. Which, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we have set up the problem and now we need to start finding some solutions. So we've gotten to that part of the script. So, uh, first up, Mickey impersonates Peter's solicitor, uh, George Michael Dolans, of course. Uh, and we will insert the, uh, audio of him really having some hilarious back and forth with Hal March. Hello, I'm George Michael Dolan's Peter Talks Solicitor. Oh, yes, yeah, shows a lot of promise, a lot of promise. Well, my client is an eccentric playboy, you see, and he has a strange affliction called ballpoint itis. Oh, <laughs> he doesn't need to sign long-term contracts. Yeah, well, this one is binding. Oh, where are the loopholes? Yeah, there aren't any. <laughs> this is outrageous. I'm, you mean to tell me that if I took this contract and I signed it here? And there. And there, that I would be forced to take your dance class for life? Right, counselor. Welcome to Ronaldo's dance of go-go. <laughs> that does yes. not go well. <laughs> um, next up, Mike heads to the dance school, but is seduced by Miss Buntwell into not only signing a contract as well, but enrolling for graduate work, too. <laughs> Which is odd, because he is the smart one, and Mickey is usually, I mean, no one's ever as dumb as Peter, and they literally all fall for the same thing in one way or another. I know, this is interesting. Yes, it's the first time Ky- Peter signs a dumb contract, but also it. I don't know if it's the only one, but it's the only one I can think of off the top of my head where um, Mike and Mickey get sucked into the scam too. So exactly, which of course this is a this is a great excellent setup for Davy because he, he they all decide they need help from the inside. So Davy, with the most dancing experience, goes to the <laughs> dance school and uh, auditions as a dance instructor and gets the job. Of course. Um, interesting side note on this scene that I don't know if I, I heard about it in an interview with Davey or an interview with, um, Jim Frawley, but the music was added in later, of course. And apparently what happened was James Frawley would basically just call out a new dance style every time Hal March pressed a button to change the station and Davey would just Mm -hmm. change styles then and there. (laughs) So really talented guy you know we kind of one of those things we take for granted but uh yeah we take for granted that he could do that at the but think about that's as you said his background and mm-hmm. i think that's really fun yeah exactly yeah. let's credit the man for the talent that he had um and he's the, the anchor for the show in the beginning so now we know why yeah especially especially that first season he he really was the anchor of the show and ronaldo sends davy to the studio for his first class which he'll be teaching in half an hour as davy prepares to go the latest winner arrives for his dance lesson and of course he turns out to be martin van buren himself cute gag <laughs> um Yes, just a silly little monkey's moment. Uh, later at the studio, Davey proceeds to teach Mickey, Mike, and Peter every type of dance from the Charleston to the hula, the Mexican hat dance, and, of course, tap dancing, singing I'll Be Back Upon My Feet. So, 
Too silly. That was what I love about that um, mm-hmm. particular one is think about how much and, and Davy actually, again, in a meta way, when we come back from it, he says how expensive that was because really they filmed all of that for that one romp. Those aren't pieces from other shows. Yeah. Now, a lot of those romp clips do get recycled into other episodes, but um, they do. They but do. still. And it looked like it was pretty much all filmed in spots we've seen before on the Columbia Ranch. So it wasn't like they were running around, uh, you know, off the, off the lot. But still, yeah. No. But they took time, which <laughs> they, they you know, they learned, let me just take a bunch of clips. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Back at the pad, uh, Mickey decides they need a brilliant idea to break Ronaldo's contract. He promptly walks off the monkey's pad set into a room full of Chinese writers, as well as a dude with a whip. <laughs> Asks him for an idea for the show. They present him with one, which he takes back to the set, crumples up and discards. Um. <laughs> now, one of the other things that I think is interesting here is, yeah. again, super meta scene. Yeah. But the papers that the gentlemen hand to him are, you can tell they're, they're colored Xerox pages. Mm-hmm. They, they're, they're like yellow or, you know, yeah. pinkish or whatever. And that is, those are actual script pages. It looked like they were to my uneducated eyes. So that was, that was a nice if touch. You, right. If you freeze it, you'll see that that is actually the script laid out the way a script is formatting um, in a couple of quick shots of it. But, but to me, what makes me laugh is that people don't understand when they look at scripts on, on PDFs. Now you can get tons of TV show scripts on PDF files on the internet because they put them out as, yep. as bits of publicity um, when the Emmys are coming up or stuff like that. And um, when you're doing scripts, you lock a script at a certain point, and that's when the ADs start to work on it, and mm-hmm. they figure out how many scenes they'll do in which location or whatever. But there are always more changes that come, and you can't put up more white pages because no one will recognize where the changes are. So for every change, you put out a colored page, pink and blue, and the joke is if you get to salmon, you have a script that's in trouble. <laughs> so I love the fact that they were handing him colored text, but that means yeah. they just pulled the script apart and said here, and they were pulling pages out. So it's a very, very meta for someone inside the business to recognize. That's awesome. I did not know that touch of it. So, and of course this is a cute wall, uh, wall break. And I felt a little weird about it having watched it again so soon after we were kind of having our little monkey's chow main discussion. But I thought you pointed out something uh, very important about the butt of that particular joke. <laughs> yes. The butt of the joke is not the Chinese gentleman at all. It's writers. He's making fun of writers. They get paid too much and they write schlock. And this is yeah. Bernie Orenstein <laughs> making fun of understanding that TV writers were already considered hacks because movie writers are more important. And so he was making fun of it. Exactly. So with that, Davy hatches another idea after reading an ad in the newspaper promising love and adventure at the dance school. Uh, the next day, an army of middle-aged women, none of whom were Mike Nesmith's mother, invades the studio. <laughs> Davy plans to give the clients a pep talk while Mike keeps Bunt, Mrs. Bunt well occupied with his rather emphatic declarations of affection. <laughs> Meanwhile, Davy, Peter, and Mickey proceed to sabotage the ladies' free sessions. Davy talks to the ladies, promising them patience, a chance to learn the latest steps, and dancing with perfect gentlemen. However, Peter and Mickey donned in disguises, uh, showing the exact opposite with their stunts sending the women leaving. Unfortunately, that's when Ronaldo walks in and discovers both plans. 
Right this way, ladies. Right this way out. Yes, no crowding, please. Right this way. Hold it, hold it, ladies. Get the dancing smoothies ready. It's an emergency. Good morning, ladies. Looking wonderful today. We'll have a nice day for dancing, aren't we? And we're going to enjoy ourselves thoroughly. What's going on, Jones? Oh, well, yeah. I was just giving the ladies a pep talk, you know. I bet you were. You can get out now. I'll take over. Good morning, ladies. I am Ronaldo. I hope you enjoyed Davy's little joke. <laughs> Monkeys uh, get another idea, and um, tricking the dancing smoothies, they pull out snub-nosed pistols. This is like the second example of gunplay on the show. Then, then they exactly. Mug- it took me by surprise. Yeah. Mugging the smoothies and donning their colorful tuxedos. As Ronaldo announces the dancing smoothies, the monkeys arrive in their place, and soon the monkeys, Ronaldo, the smoothies... Draped in ropes and undergarments, the ladies, a dog, and Miss Buntwell, but not Mike Nesma's mother, engage in a wild promenade to the tune of I'm a Believer, which ends with Ronaldo and the smoothies wrapped in their own banner as the women flee. Uh, the next day, a distressed Ronaldo, his brilliant master plan to bilk the public, now reduced to a shambles, sits at his desk brooding over his failure when the monkeys arrive for their dance lessons. They've got those lifetime contracts, after all. <laughs> but they, he, prom- uh, he offers to tear up their contracts just to get rid of them, but they are adamant and promise to keep coming back every lesson every week unless he destroys all the other contracts, too. At this point, Ronaldo is all but only too eager to agree and soon the guys are tearing up every contract he has, uh, except for Peter, who asked Ronaldo to show him the box step again just before I tracks him out. The Poor end. Peter. Poor Peter. <laughs> and what I love about that is it's the reminder that our guys are the good guys. Yes, yes. They could have solved their own problem and walked away, and that would have been the end of the episode. They saved their friend Peter and everything's good, but because they care about other people, which is the hippie mantra... They made sure that nobody else was scammed by him, and they didn't have to do that, but I think it's cute that they did. Absolutely. Um, This is a fun episode. I think it's very well-crafted. I mean, aren't any huge, you know, creative plot risks taken or anything. It's pretty much a standard sitcom episode, but it's done very well. And I do have to say, I enjoyed Davey getting to do something other than fall in love or ride a horse. (laughs) Yes. Because <laughs> he's true. he's not had big roles in the last few episodes. They've kind of been letting the other guys shine a little bit. Um, and uh, it was neat to get him to, to see him, um, you know, in kind of taking a leading role, but not as it not in one of his typical areas. So, well, and that they didn't need to save him from girl trouble. He saved them from their mistake and that all three of them made the same mistake. So he had a chance to save everybody, not even just, you know, one of them. And, you know, eventually he'll help Mickey out of the 99-pound weakling and things like that. Yeah. But this time he saved everybody. Yeah, yeah. It's it's another one of those episodes where it it's – this one is is really a ensemble episode. It, it, it would hard, be hard to – you know, Davey sort of takes a bit of a leadership role in getting them out of the scam. But I'd say this is one of those episodes where they're really balanced and all four of them – um, I'd say kind of contribute equally to moving the story along. So, oh yeah, definitely, definitely. They it, again. I think you know he was presented with this as an ensemble show, so he used the ensemble. He didn't look for one person to carry the story. He had them all do parts of it, and that's what he was used to. Again, in a show that was about balancing your leads, who's going to sing which song when, who's going to have enough time doing a sketch. You have to make everybody happy, and that was something he was good at. Yeah, very true. 
Moving on to songs in this episode. Uh, first is I'll Be Back Upon My Feet. This is the first appearance of this show, which means, of course, I get to read off the credits uh, to you. Okay, this was actually recorded a couple of different times, but this is the um, first version that was featured in the TV show. Uh, it is by Sandy Linzer and Denny Randell, who, if memory serves, also gave us that timeless classic, The Day We Fall in Love. <laughs> <laughs> it was recorded on October 28th, now, 19th. Wait, you know what? We must stay for a minute. Yes. We're all making fun of that song. But you know how many little girls played that over and over again. I would not know a thing about that. <laughs> I would not know a thing about 10-year-old Sarah maybe have done that at time or 12. Anywho. Um, yeah, Anyhow. yeah. And I mean, we talk about that um, in... Uh, Though I, I think a little bit in the Alvin album roundtable, and also uh, Ghosty Wills did a, a very good piece on the day we fall in love later on. I can't remember what episode it is, but we have talked about it numerous times. And people, yes. many people, you are not the first to have made that point. Is uh, you know, and I guess that was also sort of the idea of the time. You know, um, it, it was a very common thing to have the heartthrob sort of you know declare his love to lots of string instruments, but. Uh, <laughs> And that's not even the phone song we're talking about in this episode. We're talking about I'll Be Back Upon My Feet, um, which was recorded on October 28th of 1966 and possibly some other dates. Uh, we've got uh, Mickey Dolans on vocal, Al Casey and Carol Kay on guitar, um, Ray Pullman on bass, Hal Blaine on drums, Frank Cap and Julius Wechter on percussion. Michael Rubini and Don Randy on keyboard, uh, and unknown additional backing, uh, vocals. So that is the story on that. And the other song, of course, in this episode was I'm a Believer, and we covered those credits in One Man Shy. Uh, so you can, uh, go back to the previous episode and see how, see, see those if you need to. So, uh, any final thoughts before we wrap up? No, I think what you said earlier, this is a very basic episode, the kind of thing that people were meant to expect from what they had seen before. Um, and they, you know, you hired a guy who could deliver what you wanted and he did. Yeah. And, and I want to be clear that that I'm not like dissing this episode because I actually think this is a very fun, very funny episode. Um, and it is just, it's another one that, uh, that I think of when I think of like a typical classic season one episode. It's got some laughs. It's got a fun story. There's a moral at the end. And of course, there's, you know, there's some good music. So there you go. Well, like you, like you said, this could have happened and did happen on shows like Lucy. Gracie Allen could have signed up for this kind of thing. I mean, it was a very typical storyline for a comedy, a sitcom in that era. And so they just put it into their world and it was perfect. Yeah, with minor, yeah, with some very minor script tweaks, you could have used this basic concept in a lot of different ways. So, yeah. Okay, next time you hear from us, we will be discussing episode 15 of The Monkees, Too Many Girls slash Davy and Fern. A scheming stage mother uh, plots to break up the monkeys and pair her doe-eyed daughter Fern with Davy. Um, I've got to admit, this is always one of those episodes, I don't know, for some reason it never stuck in my head real well. Um, and I, I don't think I've watched it since the Blu-ray came out and they had put those, um, those censored scenes back in. Which we're going to have to have a whole conversation about that. But, um, you know, I'm looking forward to revisiting again for the first time in a while. So likewise, very fun. 
Okay, so we will talk to you again next time on uh, Monkeys 101. Thanks, as always, for listening, and uh, we'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. Bye. Dr. Roseanne Welch is a Mickey girl and the author of Why the Monkeys Matter, Teenagers, Television, and American Pop Culture. After a career of writing for television shows like Touched by an Angel, Picket Fences, and Beverly Hills 90210, Roseanne shifted gears and went into education. She now writes on film and television studies and teaches in the screenwriting program at Stevens College. Dr. Sarah Clark is an April conquest and proud of it. When not podcasting here at Zilch, a monkey's podcast, or writing at her blog, Fandom Lenses, her not-terribly-secret identity, she can be found leading a university library in the Philadelphia area. Sarah is convinced that her utter inability to understand Head when she was 11 sparked the intellectual curiosity that led her into academia. If only she'd known the guys themselves didn't understand Head either. Well, we hope you liked that. uh, How could you not? 101. How could you not? I I love that episode. It's just, it's a fun little first season episode, you know? Yep. Very, very typical of the first season. It's one of those episodes that I would show people if they're like, why do you like this show so much? You know? Yeah. Because it it really exemplifies everything in there and it's got one of the biggest hits in it. And you get to see each of the guys individually shine in their own moments and then come together in the end. Absolutely beautiful. Nice work. And one of the things that I don't think I actually said when Roseanne and I are talking that has also occurred to me is Davey plays such an important role in resolving the problem. Like I said, they're an ensemble, but Davey kind of plays a a slightly more leaderly role than he sometimes does, but it's not as a romantic lead. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for once, he's using his dancing chops to, you know. (laughs) (laughs) So there you go. And speaking of dancing chops. Yes. We, we have a wonderful uh, interview from The Vault that we mentioned briefly in The Monkeys 101 with Derek Lewis, who was the lead dancing smoothie in Dance Monkey Dance. And uh, rather than making everybody go back and listen to that episode, I have pulled it up and we are going to play it right now. I do want to note a couple of things. One, this episode is from 2016, so it's a few years ago. Also, I want to note that this interview was actually conducted over the phone. It's one of the few that we haven't used Skype or Zencaster or one of those, you know, hyper modern information superhighway kind of thing. We did it over the phone. So the audio quality (laughs) does reflect that. But if you don't mind listening through that, it is a great story. It's a great interview. And I think I'm going to go ahead and roll tape right now. Today on the Zilch Hotline, we have Derek Lewis joining us. We best know Derek Lewis as the lead dancing smoothie, suavely hilarious minion to scheming dance school owner Reynaldo in the first season episode, Dance Monkey Dance. However, Derek's more than that one small part. Derek's story is the story of a lot of lesser-known character actors from the first decades of TV, and his story, in some ways, is also the story of Hollywood in the 1960s. I'd like to welcome a talented man who is just as smooth and charming as he was on his role for the Monkees, Derek Lewis. Welcome to Zilch. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. So glad to be here. We're grateful to have you here. So... As I was looking over your IMDb page, I noticed that 
your career really spanned um, almost even from the late 50s throughout the entire 60s. How did you first get into acting? I developed an interest in uh, in being a puppeteer. Oh. And yeah, and I uh, created a puppet theater and would, would write the scripts for plays, little shows, you know, that, right. that uh, I would I would perform at recess and everything. And I think the uh, the writing and the acting and the voices of, of those puppets started me into uh, the field of acting, see, and enjoying that. And, of course, uh, I was a big movie fan. I would go to the movies all the time as a kid. And then by the time I got into junior high school and actually was able to get on a stage, and then I knew that that was my, my life. Out of uh, the high school uh, experiences, on a summer whim, I got into a Shakespeare repertory company. And, uh, they would do summer stock, and they would do Shakespeare plays, plus they would do comedies and uh, dramas. So I um, I was able to make my equity, and equity is the professional uh, actors union, mm-hmm, or yeah. stage, act, stage actors union. And then when I, the same year I graduated from high school, which was in 1959, I went right into Hollywood, right into films, because I had already had an an agent uh, as a kid, you know, I, I was interviewed by um, agents, and and uh, so I was able to sign with an agency. And the thing I might add about the era we're talking about that era uh, of the '60s is that um, it was the era of the juvenile delinquent in motion pictures. Yes. There were, uh, if you look back, you know, there was Rebel Without a Cause was the big movie of the late 50s. And, and people like James Dean and Sal Mineo and all these kind of, uh, you know, that kind of juvenile delinquent themes were appearing in uh, in movies. If you look at some of my early PR pictures from that era with the dark hair and the dark eyes, and you know, mm-hmm. I was a spitting image of Sal Mineo. Now, that worked in my favor in that Salmini was a movie star. TV at the, in those days was the lesser of the two. Yeah. <laughs> you know? and, but I was working. I was fine. I, I, it was, put me in front of a camera and I was happy. So I was hired many times because I looked like Salmini. <laughs> and I could play that juvenile delinquent or the friend who... The, the blonde lead had a darker friend right. or something like that. <laughs> a lot of that was timing, and, and we hate to use the word typecasting, but it was true. You know, mm-hmm. the, If the shoe the, fits, yeah. Yeah, you fit. If you fit, you fit. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, that's that's kind of what started me in the business. Mm-hmm. And uh, once you're in the business and the ball is rolling, you do everything you can to keep it rolling. Wonderful. And you played all, several guest star parts in the early 60s, kind of before that color transition on mm-hmm, shows indeed. like Loretta Young Show, Route 66, uh, My Three Sons. One of the things that stood out to me was your 1963 appearance on The Twilight Zone yes, as a helmsman in the fourth season episode, The 30 Fathom Grave. How right, did you right, get right. that part and what was it like working on such an iconic show? Well, uh, it, it was a very interesting uh, uh, experience. The uh, 30 Fathom Grave episode was one of the hour-long right. episodes. They, tr- you know, because most of the Twilight Zones are half-hour shows, you know. But for one season, they decided to to try an hour-long season. 
I had been doing leads, like you said, like Loretta Young show was my first one. I had, I had a, I had a lead on it, you know. Now, nobody in those days turned down appearance on the Twilight Zone. Right. I don't care. You know, I, I don't care if I was just walking across the deck or something. You know, I would have worked on that show. But fortunately, um, it was it just it just came to me. It was filmed at MGM. I think they filmed those shows at MGM. The way people, actors in those days, got their roles, it, w- it was all pretty cut and dry in those days. You, We were all day players, what they called day players. Mm-hmm. An hour show maybe took five, six days to shoot or something like that. In those days, it was I was very, very pleased to actually professionally work at every major studio in uh, Hollywood, except, strangely enough, for Disney. Huh. And uh, the thing I think people forget a lot of times is that we were day players, and and these were all this was all work for uh-huh. us. It was just we got a job. In other words, you got a job. It didn't become iconic. <laughs> these right. shows weren't iconic for till many many years later. Looking back, and and you say, oh my God, I work in the golden age. Of television, right? Because you never you know, know what the golden age is. Yeah, and we were in it though. That we were in it. So, uh, uh, and of course now, now is when everything is hitting the fan because all those iconic shows are celebrating their fiftieth uh, year mm-hmm. anniversary. Yeah, and um, and so everything all is new again. We're and we're all being contacted about our reminiscences reminiscences of those days yeah and uh it uh especially for my work on voyage to the bottom of the sea uh, because they actually have conventions and they have uh, you know uh, oh wow yeah let's go ahead and move on to voyage to the bottom of the sea because i guess you just must have really looked the part of a submarine officer because <laughs> yeah because not long after being on the twilight zone you were cast in that recurring role on on there and and I talked sure. around a little online and I heard that there's mm-hmm. some, there's an interesting story about how you actually wound up getting cast on the show and it was, there was yeah. a lot of luck involved. So why don't you? Well, that's talk? it. Of course, yeah. there's always a lot of luck. You know, timing and luck. You got to be ready. Mm-hmm. You know. So and in those days, we were all. We, gosh, we, we were never out of class. We were mm-hmm. all going to class. And as luck would have it, I had an agent at the time. And in the office was a sub agent, and she was <laughs> she was married to the casting director at 20th Century Fox. Ah. So we had an in, in other words. Mm-hmm. So when something came up, and it was just a, a fluke, they needed somebody for um, to play the the helmsman uh, on the sub. They sent me over there, and uh, I got a quick interview, and they sent me to wardrobe to get into a crewman's outfit. I went to wardrobe and and nothing fit. <laughs> so it, I can remember, you know, it just and I said, oh well, put him in the, this. Try this on. It's an officer's uniform. And I tried on the officer's uniform and it fit like a glove. See. <laughs> <laughs> so we started filming and I filmed the pilot as uh, in that outfit as an officer. So I was established as an officer mm-hmm. on the series from that pilot. And then when the actor who was supposed to play the uh, character of uh, Lieutenant O'Brien 
decided not to continue in the series when it sold, you know, they came to me. Right. And they said, well, you know, you're already established. You're going to be Lieutenant O'Brien. So for that whole first year, um, I got a chance to work on that show, which was uh, really a delight. And we're still doing conventions, and we're still getting together, and we're still answering tons of fan mail. And uh, the only other uh, series like that that has uh, uh, seems to have a really, really huge fan club is The Monkees. Well, you yes, uh, because, of course, the next logical step in your career is to move from submarine officer to head instructor at a dancing school. I mean, it's just <laughs> obvious. <laughs> and, yeah. and, yeah, and we all know kind of the famous stories of how the four leads were cast, but what was it like to just get cast on, on sort of a smaller day role on the monkeys? Right. Well, uh, as I said, those were the days where it was all set up really, really um, uh, the same way. First of all, you had to have an agent. Right. Right. Everybody had to have a professional agent. The agent got the call. You went to see the casting director. You read for the part. You either got it or you didn't. It was clean. It was, you know. But like I said, you know, in those days, I was I was getting a lot of uh, mm-hmm. uh, parts, you know. So that's all that was. I, they sent me. It was I think it was Columbia Studios. I'm pretty sure, yes, definitely yeah. Columbia. Yeah. And um, I saw the casting director, who I probably had auditioned for before, you see. Mm-hmm. So that always works in your favor, too, if you're familiar to the cut. And, and then they didn't give you the job, a job the first time he saw you, but now he's going to give you this one, you know. So I got that role. So there's, there, there wasn't anything, you know, there was, that was just a, a, a usual kind of uh, interview type of uh uh, job interview, mm-hmm. you know, and I, and I got it, and it was so much. It was a lot of fun. It was awesome. A lot of fun. Well, and you got to be in one of the episodes that was directed by uh, Jim Frawley, the man who mm-hmm. really created the style of the TV show and won an Emmy, exactly. and just bec- went on to become this this really significant film and TV director in his own rights. Uh, do you have any particular special memories of working with Jim Frawley? Uh, I do, uh, and also I might add that he lives not far from me here in Palm Springs, California. Oh, wonderful! Uh, well, tell uh, him we love him. Well, I'll try. <laughs> he didn't respond. He did not respond to my last email, so we'll Aww. see what's going to happen. I don't know. He, I don't. He's probably um, uh, over, over eighty now. I would think. I think so. But, I think he's still in pretty good shape, though. I understand. But I hope. I hope so, because he was also a, a good actor, mm-hmm. um, and. Uh, but I'll tell you, the, the thing I lo- loved about working on on the Monkees and that particular show was that, that uh, first of all, everybody was having a, a really good time. There were a lot of laughs. There yeah. were a lot of laughs. You know, and sometimes you wondered how they're going to get everything done. But Frawley was, was uh, uh, enjoy, enjoying his work as a director, and he had a great rapport with the boys, you know. Mm-hmm. Now, it's, for me, that show was sort of like West Side Story, where there were the Jets and the Sharks. Well, you yeah. know, there were the there were the monkeys and there were the smoothies. Exactly, <laughs> that's a good metaphor. <laughs> On the set that day, and uh, and the one thing that st- sticks out in my mind about the shoot was that um, they were beginning to use these handheld or shoulder-held cameras. Wow. They were actually putting the uh, camera on their shoulder 
and following you around, you know, and, and just would follow in and out and, and move move around. There was the scene where Mickey goes to the writer's room. Yes. And he breaks uh, he breaks that fourth dimension and he walks through the sound stage. Yeah, and the cameras following him all. <laughs> and the around. cameras are following him. You know how they kept it smooth about bumping it, but it, it was part of the style. You know. Right. And, and that created that kind of free freestyle. And that was another thing about the monkeys. They were also introducing the songs, you know. And I'm a believer was the was the one I believe was introduced on that show. That was it was. I'm, it a, was, I'm a believer. Yeah, yeah, and and what was it like? The process of filming uh, one of those, I, I guess, and you know, we call them music videos now, but we called them romps back in the day. What was that yes. like? Yes. Well, again, the, uh, you watch that scene where we're. Uh, uh, they had they'd taken our clothes. <laughs> we <Yes>. were, <laughs> I think we, we we were in long johns or something, and you know, and they he blocked us, and and but then the cameras were going all the way all around us in mm-hmm. different you know directions. But the real magic was later when they edited, right? When they edit that stuff, and they click it clicks back and forth to whatever they want to focus on, you know. I do remember that that it was so unique that these cameras uh, were sneaky. Were so sneaky, you didn't you didn't really know where they were, you know, at at times. Right. You had to just do you had to just do what you were doing, you know, and uh, uh, and then a lot of it was improvised. Yeah. In that you'll see the guys doing uh, hand things and mm-hmm. and. Uh, and this wasn't rehearsed that much, you know. Yeah, well, and, were they like yelling out directions to you about like mm-hmm. jump up and down or anything like that, or did you guys just kind of? Well, just general. We had general directions, but the interaction between the smoothies and uh, and the monkeys, we improvised that oh, because wow. uh, they they were really uh, on top of their game. You know, it was all about their personalities, and of course they we let them lead. Mm-hmm. With what they wanted to do, and we just followed along. You know, I mean, it's it was it was great. Uh, it was great fun because as actors, you do learn to improvise, but you don't often get a chance uh, to do a lot of that. Yeah. I remember uh, uh, meeting Hal March, who was oh, yes. at that time, okay. but he was he was well known. Right. Um, he had been uh, on the air quite a bit, and mm-hmm. uh, uh, he he was fun. I didn't stick around Hollywood very much after that. What was that? That was 19. That was 66. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I did a couple more years in Hollywood, and then I took this long break because I was exhausted. I had done 10 years or more in Hollywood. And, oh, yeah. Uh, I wanted to get out and see the world, and, and my music allowed me to do that. But I went back to Hollywood in the middle uh, 80s. And I started working again, and I did uh, two main uh, soaps. One was the, uh, called Santa Barbara. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. Oh, you remember that? Okay, it didn't well, last very long. Well, I, I remember my mom watching it. Oh, God, you make me feel so old. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have many well, generations in the monkeys community. What can I say? That's true. That's true. And listen, there's nothing like looking at the TV screen now and seeing yourself 50 years ago yeah. and, and uh, reliving your youth because that happens a lot 
uh, for actors, which is mm-hmm. a lot of fun, actually. Yeah. I was also on The Young and the Restless uh, oh, for a wow. while. I did uh, a, a good lead on a court show called Superior Court, and um, even a, an appearance on The Jeffersons, which should be in the IMDb. It will I'm, show I'm not sure it was. Of course, I've been discovering no. that IMDb is, like you said, not totally accurate. In fact, we've... No, it's not. Yeah. You kind of have to juggle their their memory and, and send things in once in a while. Yeah, there's actually um, an urban legend or two that Melanie's going to be clearing up when she gets to the uh, episode commentary. But uh, yeah, so. But you know, there were a lot of a lot, a lot of appearances up here. Like I was on the Danny Kay show, and I was on uh, uh, Dupont show of the week, which was a big uh, show. But again, these were shot for for TV and not. Right. Um, you know, credited as a IMDb, but that's okay. You know, I mean, yeah. I'm really happy I was a part of uh, that era. And as a matter of fact, uh, the, I'm going to thank the monkeys somewhere. I believe in the in the volume of the monkeys collection of uh, DVDs. You mm-hmm. know, when they re- finally released them uh, when they're talking about the smoothies uh, and and my part in there. Uh, there's an asterisk, and it goes down to a to a footnote. Okay. Right? Now the footnote makes a mention of m- of me being playing Lieutenant O'Brien on board to the bottom of the sea. Oh, neat. As a as a tie-in, so I I, I decided that that was a sign, and I should uh, title my memoir footnote. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> because. That's how I really look at my Hollywood career, which is a lot of fun. I met a lot of very interesting people. And I did some iconic shows, you yeah. know, and um, worked with some really, really great actors. And uh, uh, I, I, it was a wonderful time. But I was I was a footnote. I was a footnote in Hollywood. But I guess that's better than not being anything at all. You know? Well, you're a fascinating footnote, and I'm. Uh, thank you for sharing some of these stories. And I understand that uh, these days you are more of a musician. Um, you, yeah, I'm. I'm a. I'm a uh, singer. Singer pianist. Mm-hmm. And I, I. I did that all through the Hollywood years uh, to keep food on the table as well. Yeah, always a nice and, touch. And uh, then I did the cruise ship industry for ten oh, years. Oh wow! The world. I got this uh, this job at uh, it's it's called the Tropical. It's mm-hmm. the finest restaurant in Palm Springs, and I only work there a couple nights a week. But it's all I I need, and it's just wonderful. I sing and play um, a Great American Songbook, jazz, right. that things. Yeah, and it's very very old mid century Palm Springs style, and it fits fits here. Wonderful, happy. wonderful. So where can people learn more about you? Uh, well, right now uh, I am on Facebook. You know, I, uh, I, uh, if somebody will introduce themselves, because my life in that sense is still a public thing, you know. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I do still perform. I still appear on stage, and I still uh, like to keep active. Right. Even though uh, I'm going to be 75 years old in June. Well, Congratulations, and I wouldn't have guessed it from this lovely conversation. Um, <laughs> it's it's amazing how the time goes by. 
listen, <laughs> tell me about it. <laughs> tell me about it. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you so much for sharing your story and for dropping by Zilch. And good luck to you playing your Saturday night gigs at the Tropical. And uh, thanks for coming in. My pleasure, dear. Thank you so much. Well, that was wonderful hearing that uh, interview with Derek Lewis. I hope you guys were able to put up with my side of it okay enough. It was one of my very first solo interviews, but Derek was just such a sweet gentleman, and it still, to this day, uh, stands out as one of my favorite moments on Zilch, just getting to call up this guy and getting to learn about his life. It was a it was a wonderful conversation. I will tell you that as an actor, when someone recognizes you from a bit part, that you did or just like a walk on or something like that. It's really gratifying. And, you know, so many of these guys did so many little walk on parts and, you know, like all the little character actors that have come in and out of, of the monkeys episodes and stuff like that. You know, a lot of them, you know, just appreciate, Hey, I remember when you were on that episode, blah, blah, blah. I remember talking to Rip Taylor one time and mm-hmm. I'm like, you know, you were on two episodes. He's like, I know I loved that show. <laughs> He was crazy. He was absolutely fun. I have heard that. And and I have also observed that it seems like the guest stars on Monkeys either loved it or hated it. Yeah. Yeah. There was no like, oh, yeah, I was on that show. Whatever. No, because then you get Hans Conried, who just <laughs> hated the guys. Right? Yep. Or or Rosemary, who's like, I get more fan that is from being on the monkeys than anything else. That's my best Rosemary. Sorry about that. So, Dr. Clark, great, great work on yet another episode in the can. We look forward to episode 172 coming whenever we get around to it. And in the meanwhile, there's a lot of great stuff. If, you, if you're not listening to Monkey Mania Radio on Live 365, check it out. You know, our, 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 our podfather, Ken Mills, is on over the weekends and picks his own music he 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 fought for creative control and got it (laughs) i hope they didn't fight him that hard (laughs) i don't know he put his face he he put his fist through the wall that's all i'm saying anyway uh monkey mania radio is available on live 365 the guys who are over there are you know they're they're doing what they're doing i'm not a part of it but it is it is absolutely fantastic and there is a fantastic cover of some of shelley's blues by patrick cooper and we'd like you to hear that. So we're going to let that take you out. Dr. Clark, always a pleasure. Always a pleasure talking to you too. And everybody stay safe, stay warm, enjoy this great autumn weather. Hope you had a wonderful Halloween. Hope you're about to have a great Thanksgiving. And we will see you next time on Zilch. The Aristocrats. Podcast. The Aristocrats. Bye. Bye. Once more the reason why you must sleep. Tell me the reason why you think you don't love me. Tell me again, but don't think you'll convince me. Oh, you say, rather falling in and out of love, you'd rather be dead. All the times you've tried, you've cried your eyes red. Nothing so bad about the life that you led As far as I can see There's no reason for goodbyes You're just running scared And that's something I won't buy 
Oh, you lose. I won't let you go with nothing to show but marvelous. All this talk about leaving strictly bad news. So you settle down and stay with a man that loves you. There's no reason for goodbye You're just running scared And that's something I won't buy Oh, you I won't take a no with nothing to show But more blues All this talk about leaving strictly bad So you settle down and stay with the boy that loves you You settle down and stay with the boy that loves you settle down and stay with the man that loves you. You settle down and stay with the man that loves you. And that's our show. Zilch is an online nonprofit monkeys audio fanzine made by fans for fans. Any samples of music or interviews heard remain property of their owners. We are not related to the monkeys or any of their members, past or present. We are not affiliated with Rhino or Ray Bird. If you hear anything you like from the band, go on Amazon or iTunes and buy it. If you enjoyed the show, like us on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Thank you for listening. Until next time, I'm your announcer, Chelsea Epstein, saying always take some time to monkey around.